Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, to hear what's on his mind and look at the week and weeks ahead. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you back on. Always a pleasure, Vago. We couldn't stay away. You were kind enough to join us on uh, Friday for our roundtable, and it's great to have you back. Uh, Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Uh, Byron, let's uh, start. It, you know, it's been a couple of weeks since you've joined us on a Monday to give us uh, kind of a look ahead. Uh, what are you what, what are you tracking on the week ahead, right? Tuesday through Friday uh, that our audience should be paying attention to. Well, I think the biggie is going to be the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, markup of the National Defense Authorization Act. Now, these are closed hearings uh, that conclude, I believe, on Thursday with a full committee hearing. So there, there should be some news out on Friday, you know, depending on when the markup's completed, at least a summary of, of what changes they're going to recommend to the administration's uh, fiscal year 22 request. They're really the second of the four major oversight committees that's that's going to come up with their recommendations for, for what to change in the FY22 request. House Appropriations kind of committed their work, com- completed their work last week. Uh, you know, with I don't think there was anything really significant that was surprising in, in the changes that they made. They did add about a billion dollars to military construction. That subcommittee did. Um but, you know, there was money put back in for the DDG-51 uh, destroyer that, that had been uh, cut, I guess, from last year's plan for FY22. Um, you know, so I'm, I, you are going to see this debate and tension play out again between Republicans who want to see spending at a 3 to 5% real increase over FY21 to kind of, you know, match the resources that they believe are necessary and other DOD leadership have talked about is necessary for the national defense strategy. But, you know, the administration's request and even the Trump plan last year was well below that three to 5% uh, cadence that, that had been recommended. Um, I, I want to go to sort of broader uh, congressional uh, temperature, and hopefully you can join us on the Friday roundtable uh, for, for the after action that we do with uh, the whole team, which we hope to reconvene. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the Senate uh, Appropriations Defense Subcommittee, right? They're also going to be talking about divestitures this week. They are, and it's going to be interesting. It's, it's really focusing on Navy and Air Force weapon systems divestments. This is a Wednesday hearing at 10 a.m. I mean, this has been contentious from the word go, uh, the divestments that the DOD had listed. Uh, you've got senior Navy and Air Force leadership, uh, Lieutenant General David Nahum of the Air Force is going to be testifying, as well as uh, Vice Admiral James Kilby and Vice Admiral uh, Randy Kreitz. So they'll be testifying on, uh, you know, certainly the, the Ticonderoga class divestments, uh, some of the Amphib uh, divestments that were recommended, uh, not recommended, requested by the administration, the FY22 request. And I'm sure uh, uh, General Naham's going to be facing questions about F-16, C-130Hs, um, 
uh, and some of the UAS un unmanned air systems investitures that were proposed as well. Will this change anything? The problem with these year in and year out has been, you could argue, and I think there are a lot of people who would argue, you know, these programs, uh, these platforms are ill-equipped for uh, future contingencies that the DOD expects to face, particularly in a high uh, conventional environment in Indo-Pacific or, or even in, in Eastern Europe. But <clears throat> they impact local communities because the squadrons that get retired, um, there may not always be replacement aircraft to, to fill those billets. And they have local impacts on, on jobs and local economies. So I don't know if the DOD is going to be more successful in making its case, but it's it's interesting. I'm not aware of a hearing like this that had been scheduled over the past couple of years, even though the DOD has uh, consistently come up with these sorts of, of divestments. A-10s was another aircraft that I, I should mention as well, too, that uh, General Mahomes is going to have to be addressing. Um, and, and obviously, folks are concerned, um, you know, air power folks are concerned that there are several hundred airplanes. The Air Force wants to retire. Navalists are up in arms because of the uh, whether it's the littoral combat ship or the cruiser retirements, yep. uh, as well as the slowed down building um, schedule. But ultimately, Byron, do you notice lawmakers sort of changing their tune, right? Because the Air Force chief of staff, CQ Brown, would say, I I'm better off taking I'm taking less risk now than if I delay these decisions for the future. Um, so let me take less risk now than take more risk to try to do them later. Do you notice whether lawmakers are, are changing their tune? I, I ask Michael Herson, who joins us every week from American Defense International, the same question. But do you notice a change at all as somebody who's been watching this for decades, the sort Not of tenor of the discussion? Not necessarily in the testimony itself. And when you've had hearings, no, I mean, these issues come up time and time again. And I think, you know, the, the core problems that seem to be addressed, the A-10 is just the classic one where the, you know, again and again and again in these hearings, the Air Force is not divesting itself of its A-10 fleet. It needs to take out some of the older A-10s, quite frankly, to free up uh, headroom, uh, literally crews that can be moved over for, the new F-35 squadrons that are coming into the Air Force. So it's 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 an interesting, it, it, you know, I, I don't know how much traction the DOD has got on this. And I'd still argue, look, some of these airplanes, when you talk about the pre-block F-16s, for example, you know, they should be divested. I mean, we, we, you know, who, keep, who keeps their, you know, 40-year-old car around if you can save on the repair bills to get something that's more capable and, and more efficient? I think... Uh that's a simple I, logic, but uh, I think I think it, it, but it hasn't it hasn't registered yet. Well, right, because the costs are so distributed. Consider that the United States Air Force operates more like Type seven hundred seven, you know, KC one thirty fives than any airline is is actually operating newer aircraft, uh, almost right. I mean, I don't want to get in trouble. Maybe Southwest has a couple of more airplanes. Uh, than the Air Force does, but I think it would be hard pressed. And yet we've created the industrial infrastructure to support them. And so we don't really register the annual sustainment cost. In, you know what I mean? We, we don't break it down or look at it the way United Airlines or American would look at it as, as terms in terms of a depreciating asset, right? Right. And, and you know, and the, the operations and maintenance budgets where a lot of this resides, uh, that, that, that's where 
they're not that transparent in the way these uh, these line items, you know, there's no line item for O&M for pre-block F-16s in the Air Force budget. They're, the data may exist somewhere, but it's certainly not something that is available at the level of detail that you see in procurement and RDT&E requests. Let's uh, take a look at a couple of the other major uh, think tank events. There are two uh, from the Atlantic Council uh, that jump out, although the Atlantic Council event that has our uh, good friend, Dr. Jim Hasek uh, and Bill Greenwalt, uh, both of them are at it, but it's a Mark Kansian report uh, that's actually a a Center for Strategic uh, and International Studies report. And then there's an Atlantic Council cyber report as well. Walk us through some of the big uh, events that you think people should be putting on their agenda. Certainly, military mobilization would be one of them. Um, the military mobilization issue is, is just, it's, it's fundamental to, to, uh, to great power competition. Um, we've talked about this before. I'm actually in Vermont. Uh, this, we were here this weekend and uh, went to the American Precision Tool Museum in Windsor, Vermont. Um, and, you know, it's fascinating. It's a little tiny museum. Uh, people have time and they want to get up to uh, cooler climbs. Um, I highly recommend it because of the role that the American machine tool industry played in not just the general industrialization of the United States, but there's some really interesting exhibits and discussions about the machine tool industry, for example, and the Norton bomb site uh, and, and the role that it, it was fundamentally critical um, in, in the mobilization that uh, led ultimately to a U.S. victory in the, in the Second World War, along with our allies as well. So I find these questions about capacity and how can you flex and the flip of it, and this is something that Mark Kensian has written about, is, you know, great power competition. Unfortunately, when we talk about conflict, it, it's, you're looking at higher wastage rates of platforms uh, in, in the, these kind of combat scenarios and the ability to replace those uh, quickly, frankly, faster than your adversary um, or adversaries is, is, uh, is critical. And I, I just glad that this is again being elevated to, uh, to, to a discussion now where DOD goes with this. Um, I, I think, you know, a flip of this is the um, industry, you know, itself is driven to efficiency. You know, you see a lot of these, sometimes it comes up on earnings conference calls, you know, well, what are you guys going to do to floor space? How much, how much excess capacity can you take out of your physical um, footprint that you have, your, your facilities that you either own or lease and deliver those savings back to shareholders? And I, I think, unfortunately, you know, you need that flex, you need that spare capacity um, to, to be available in case we are confronted with a situation where we either have to build up very rapidly because of a, a sharp deterioration of security, um, or there's a conflict where we actually have to start thinking about replacing stuff quickly. And uh, we we want to have uh, uh, Mark uh, on the program, and at least that's the plan uh, for uh, Thursday. Uh, but obviously, there's a lot of schedule juggling to do between uh, now and then. What are some other, other uh, events that you're paying attention to? Well, CSBA is going to be having an event <clears throat> on a report that they released last week on, uh, I guess it's deterrence by detection. Um, I frankly have not read the report yet. Uh, it's it's in my inbox this afternoon, so I'll be I'll be looking for that. Um, you mentioned the cybersecurity um, 
uh, event that Atlanta Council is doing. There are a couple of others. There's actually, I think, a, a hearing in the Senate on uh, critical infrastructure and, and cybersecurity. Um, there's a hearing on Cuba. And I know we've talked a little bit about this, but I'm also fascinated by, A, what, it, what had erupted in Cuba. And actually, today on Monday, there was an interesting story in the Washington Post about, uh, it was a, an essay about uh, South Africa and how quickly things exploded there. And that these, these types of very disruptive mass protests are, are another element of security that I, uh, people ought to be thinking about. I, I don't have a high conviction conclusion about what they mean, but I do think if you overlay, you know, it looks like another surge in global uh, COVID-19 infections, the, the additional fiscal stresses that that's gonna place on governments, the underlying tensions and uncertainties about, you know, are governments failing or, you know, are there spots where they've actually succeeded in some of this stuff? But these are audits, and a lot of governments have have failed the audit uh, that COVID nineteen has has brought. And uh, I I worry about it. Um, I worry that you're going to see more of these types of um, uh, you know fairly messy mass protests, disruptions that have uh, all sorts of repercussions. Haiti had a presidential assassination recently. Cuba, you know, these are security problems that they've been there, but but I don't think they've been front of mind. And as we talked about on Friday, I, I think they have domestic political ramifications to think through too. And it does play into the debate about the role of social media, right? For some, it's an empowering tool uh, that is the ultimate voice of democracy. For others, uh, right, a, a venue in which disinformation, misinformation, uh, can can be used, right? So on the one hand, an open internet or a relatively unclosed internet, maybe to put it that way in Cuba, um, allows mass demonstrations that then destabilize an authoritarian uh, regime, one of the last real communist regimes in the world. On the other hand, um, you know, you've seen in the United States, the administration raising questions, for example, about Facebook and saying, look, you know, handfuls of um, anti-vaxxers or other uh, peddlers of misinformation and disinformation can get disproportionate power by using some of these channels. So it's actually an interesting broader debate, isn't it, Byron? Yes, and I don't think technology-enabled. I, I think it's new. Future. It's it's just it's it's an accelerant. Um, it's not right. new. New. I mean, you go back to the Arab Spring, for example, and the role that social media played there. And there there have been workarounds. Uh, I know. You know, another, we didn't really talk about it, but the, uh, some of the opposition leaders from Belarus are going to be in the United States this week. And that would have been one that shows how, even though there's, there's popular protest against a, uh, an unpopular leader uh, in, in Lukashenko's uh, regime, they've been able to tamp this down. I mean, you know, it, it just hasn't broken out and spilled out in the open. I think the, the problem, the, the problem the Cuba could pose is you have a large U.S. population of Cuban Americans, and boy, you know you've already seen some postings of uh, some fairly brutal tactics that, uh, that that the Cuban regime has used. But you know, are you an event away from a, a mass casualty incident, and and how could that inflame um, calls for harsher U.S. action against against uh, against the, the current regime. We'll see. We'll see. 
um, it, it uh, certainly is interesting. Uh, and I, I take uh, the accelerant uh, part of it, right? I mean, some is Dadists were doing this with printing, you know, sort of under, underground clandestine printing presses. Um, on, on the other hand, I think time and again, you've seen if you're brutal enough, you can actually stay in power. The question is how long you stay in power, right? I mean, because we've seen ultimately all forms of authoritarianism have an expiration date on them uh, in, in, in general. Uh, so, you know, it, it certainly would be interesting to see whether the North Korean regime, for example, is going to be around another hundred years uh, from now, whereas, you know, chances are pretty good. M most democracies will be assuming, you know, they, they don't, um, self-destruct as well, right? Um, let so me, the, so, you know, but I think I think the question for defense um, is, okay, is this something that that reshapes U.S. thinking about security issues? Everybody's focused now on great power competition, Indo-Pacific, uh, to a, a somewhat lesser extent, but I think still a, an important uh, extent, uh, Russia. Um, you know, I, I, a year ago, year and a half ago, Venezuela was certainly bubbling and nothing really happened there, um, you know, to the, to the degree that uh, it, it caught U.S. attention uh, and, uh, you know, but, but it really did shape or reshape defense plans or security perceptions. And you just, you know, it's just something people have to be mindful of in thinking about what's going to happen over the balance, not the balance of this week, but really over the balance of 21 and into 2022. And if COVID uh, infection rates, I, I saw a statistic today, I think, you know, you're now seeing increases in all 50 states. Um, these are still largely people who are unvaccinated, but, uh, you know, when you get into the developing world, uh, a lot of these countries, boy, they, these are just, you know, <laughs> there aren't, there, there isn't the medical infrastructure to, to deal with this, let alone the, uh, the economic infrastructure. Um, it's uh, certainly going to be interesting to see whether or not we end up in a lockdown situation in part because an, a very large portion of the population still hasn't gotten their first vaccine. Right. Um, and there are some people who, you know, could have gotten two vaccines, but only got one of their shots. And so it's going to be interesting to see the impact of the Delta variant and then to see how it then further evolves, right? I mean, so there's this, you know, we, we want to be over with COVID. COVID may not be over with us. Right, right, right. Um, uh, let me take you, let me shift uh, gears a little bit. You know, you're talking about broader unrest, but two other unrest drivers, and I think that we have a tendency of sometimes, you know, food insecurity drives conflict, uh, inability to... Um, Right, water shortages drive conflict, uh, and in fact, we've seen Turkey build dams on the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, rivers, which is more likely than not going to be a conflict point as we get uh, further downstream. We're seeing climate-driven catastrophe. Uh, Belgium uh, and certainly Germany has been uh, struck with devastating flooding that may have, you know, there were 1,300 people unaccounted for just in Germany. Yeah. Um, Russia is struggling with unprecedented wildfires. In, in its um, Arctic, how do food and climate, and you know, how are they gonna be, it, are, are we moving needles on both of these to be a little bit more understanding and try to figure out what can be done to address this? Because as a historic tendency, we're all about the security mission after 250, 300, 400, 500,000 people die. 
But until then, we have a tendency of sort of not focusing on it. How, do these change how we should be thinking and how people are thinking? Do you notice a rhetorical narrative yeah. change at all? Um, yes, yes, and yes. And I don't, I don't know where to pick up with it other than, you know, kind of land on it uh, with a couple of random points. Um, so food inflation, you know, yes, there, there are people in the United States who face food insecurity every day, you know, but it's a much smaller part of the population than it is in other parts of the world. <clears throat> and, you know, the Arab Spring arguably took place at a time where uh, food prices had spiked. Um, and if I remember, it was a, uh, a vegetable or fruit and vegetable vendor in Tunisia, in Tunisia who kind of kicked this whole thing off. Um, in a, in a time when food prices have been rising, the Russian revolution took place in a time when food prices had risen and spiked dramatically, uh, in, in Russia in 1917. So I think it's, um, as I said, it's kind of a mind, you know, top of mind thing. It, it, it kind of loops back into the discussions you guys have had on the Friday call, particularly with Michael about infrastructure and, and the point I made earlier about, about machine tools and kind of what, what are your foundational economic strengths? You know, military power flows from, uh, you know, what, what you're able to do with your economy, what you're able to do with mobilizing people and, and uh, governance. And so I think, are we, are, are these demands, uh, Put it this way, there, there are going to be further demands, I think, to address some of this stuff and, and uh, how it's addressed. You know, is it addressed with larger foreign aid packages? Is it, is it addressed through more domestic investor in, investment in infrastructure or aid to compete against uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative? You know, the money is going to come from somewhere in this, you know, and at some point, I don't think we've really found exactly where those limits are. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's something that defense has to compete with and arguably, you know, it's as important as defense spending, uh, as, as an element of national security. Um, I, you know, just, just to drive home your tool, uh, point, um, the countries that make good machine tools tend to be industrial superpowers. And that's the reason why China, for example, has been so desperate to get a handle on the tool industry, for example. It's why Japan restricts the export of tools, right? I mean, it treats it as a controlled material, if I understand it uh, correctly. Whereas Germany has been very, very eager to export as much as it can because it's seen China as a market. Now it seems like the Chinese are starting to produce tools that are pretty good. And the Germans are now worried about that. And, and I think if you're a car exporter, you should be worried about China uh, because China was stealing VW designs and putting them into production uh, in China under the cherry label before VW was able to do it because of cyber espionage, right? I mean, so ultimately, I think anybody who's not focused on the importance of precision tools is kind of missing the geostrategic point, aren't they? Not to take this back to your Vermont tool factory, uh, tool museum uh, point. Well, it's it's what 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 can you what can your society generate and and, and military power? You know, I think there's still a, a perception that the U.S. is can be can easily turn the switch back to become the arsenal of democracy again. And um, I knew a person who used to teach at West Point who would 
put up a slide. The first picture was, I think, the Willow Run plant during World War II. And of course, you know, I think it's B-24 tails as far as the eye can see. And then as he said, well, that's, I think the perception that a lot of people have today is, you know, oh, the U.S. defense industry is, is uh, you know, we can turn that switch on in a hurry. Um, and then he he show, he would show a picture of, I guess it was the now the BAE systems plant in York, Pennsylvania, where they did Bradley, or they still do Bradley uh, infantry fighting vehicles. And, you know, it kind of looks like a little workshop. I mean, there are maybe five or six vehicles on the floor. You know, it's almost a bespoke uh, type of, of, uh, of enterprise. Um, and again, it gets back to the ability to flex for this kind of, of change. Um, and, and so it really requires like, you, you know, anybody who, who, who can code, who can write software, where do you find skilled machinists this day, uh, pipe fitters? Uh, the, the shipyards certainly know this. And, um, you know, they're, they're even handling, having issues now hiring people to deal with the uh, increase in work that's coming as a result of Columbia and, and, uh, and other, well, the, the, the larger sides, Virginia submarines. So I just find it, uh, you know, we, we tend to talk a lot about the budget numbers around defense, but without really digging into, do you have the labor force? Do you have, you know, we talk about STEM labor, but, but uh, or not STEM, STEM, STEM skills, but we really don't get into right. the, the, the people who actually get their fingernails dirty uh, when they do this kind of work. And that, that's foundational to, uh, to generating and sustaining military power. As our friend, uh, uh, mutual friend, Brett Lambert was fond of saying, right, it, just because you're somebody who takes a shower before work, you sometimes have a tendency of forgetting that the guys who take showers after work are the most important people in this ecosystem. And we have a tendency of not paying as much attention to those people as we should. 100% agreed. Byron, thanks very much. Always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, so much more to discuss. Hopefully you can join us on Friday. We'd love to have you back on for an after action and some color commentary on what should be an interesting week before uh, seven weeks of uh, hiatus, right? Uh, they're, they're all going to be going out of town and giving everybody a break. Yeah, but it's never it's never quiet, Vago. You know those are famous last words, right? It's never That's quiet. Exactly. It's, <laughs> never, it's, it's quiet. Too yeah. quiet. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Byron, thanks very much again. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Vago. Cheers. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.